There once was a great and wealthy man who owned a vast business empire. He bought a piece of prime real estate and built a great tower, which was surrounded by beautiful gardens. He said he had to leave on other business, and so he rented his great tower and spectacular gardens to a group of investors and left on his lengthy journey. After some months, he sent three of his business associates to collect his profit from these investors who were operating his tower and gardens. The investors refused to hand over the money, and the representatives were insulted, abused, and threatened. Court documents were prepared by the investors disputing ownership of the property. The wealthy owner then sent a vice president and several corporate lawyers. The renters treated them rudely as well, roughing them up by some paid thugs. Finally, the wealthy owner sent his own son, who was president of his entire business empire, to deal with these men. However, when they saw the son, they hired a hitman and put a contract on the son. He was gunned down while eating breakfast in a local restaurant. When the wealthy owner comes with his armies, what do you think he will do to those renters, those investors? Well, as you know, Jesus told a similar story to the Jewish leaders in the first century in Matthew 21. Jesus said these words as he concluded his story. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Matthew 21 Zechariah paints a similar picture in Zechariah 11. This is one of the grimmest prophecies in Scripture. It is the darkest moment in Zechariah's preaching ministry. Following the last chapter, which had been such a wonderfully encouraging message to preach, this message comes as a brutal shock. His preaching point is simple. Reject the Savior and reap the consequences. Reject the Savior and reap the consequences. Zechariah predicts that Israel will reject their shepherd when he comes to save them. God sent his prophets to the nation for many, many years, but the people would not listen. Finally, God sends his own son, and they killed him. The message for Israel is simple. Rejection of the shepherd brings rejection by the shepherd. There are five parts to this incredible prophecy in Zechariah 11. First, the shepherd's dreadful desolation, Zechariah 11, verses 1 through 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, 
for the cedar has fallen, because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherds' wail, for their glory is ruined. There is a sound of the young lion's roar, for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. These verses are very difficult to interpret in their context. They are clearly speaking in poetic language of a terrible desolation for kings and rulers. But who is the fulfillment of the prophecy? Does this passage conclude the previous section and refer to the Gentile nations being judged by God? Or does it introduce chapter 11 and speak of the desolation of Palestine because of their coming rejection of Messiah? I believe that these verses picture, in poetic form, the terrible desolation of Palestine during the Roman invasion in the first century AD under Vespasian and Titus. The devastation of the land was so terrible that it's pictured in poetic form here with the great forests wailing their destruction and the shepherds wailing the destruction of their pasture land. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us all about the terrible desolation of this Roman invasion in his book, The Jewish War. He was an eyewitness as governor of Galilee at the outset of the war, and was taken prisoner by Vespasian. Jewish revolutionaries fought the Romans and eventually massacred the Roman garrison at Jerusalem. Vespasian, at the head of an army of 65,000 soldiers, marched into the land and systematically destroyed the defenses beginning in Galilee and ending with Jerusalem. It was a terrible ordeal of famine, and bloody massacres culminating in the fall of Jerusalem to General Titus on September 26, A.D. 70. Titus ransacked the city and devastated the surrounding countryside. The Jewish zealots held out for three more years in a fortress called Masada and eventually committed suicide rather than surrender to the Romans. Zechariah poetically pictures all of this desolation with the eye of a prophet. The land is ruined, while the young lions roar pitifully and the shepherds wail for their lost land. It will be the judgment of God upon a people who rejected their Messiah. Friends, there are dreadful consequences for rejecting Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Israel has been under Gentile domination ever since, and has never again held total control of the city of Jerusalem or their homeland. The nation learned the lesson, reject the Savior and reap the consequences. With that introduction to his sermon, Zechariah goes on to predict the shepherd's doomed mission in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at that doomed mission as he explains it. Thus says the Lord my God, 
pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished, and each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power, and into the power of his king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. In these verses we have the reason for the destruction pictured in the opening words of chapter 11. Quite frankly, if it wasn't for knowing what we know from the New Testament, we would have a very difficult time interpreting this entire chapter. The verses are much clearer from our vantage point of knowing the life and death of Jesus and the history of Jerusalem than they were in Zechariah's day. God asks Zechariah to act out a little play, a drama, of shepherding, which becomes the illustration of the people's rejection of the true shepherd in the first century, the one we call Jesus. God tells the prophet to pasture the flock doomed to slaughter in verse 4. The Hebrew word which is used here refers to the violent killing of men, often in the context of war. The sheep are destined to be slaughtered in a war, and that is exactly what the Romans did in the first century. Talk about an unpleasant job description for this shepherd. The buyers, in verse 5, are the Gentile rulers, and the sellers would be the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders literally sold their people into slavery, seeking riches and instant gratification for themselves. They used the priesthood to buy favors from Rome and to bribe their way into power. Then they piously would perform sacrifices in the temple and give praise to God for their riches, which were gained through bribery and political compromise. God warns them. God warns them that he will not defend his people when the foreign armies come and destroy them because of their hypocrisy and greed. The obstinate sheep will go into captivity under Gentile domination for the next 2,000 years. That's what we know now from our history. The lesson from the first century fulfillment of this prophecy is simple. Reject the Savior and reap the consequences. And my friends, the same is still true today. Many reject the Savior today, looking for gratification in other sources, in money, in sex, in power, and fame. Yet the return on that decision is just as devastating on an individual basis as it was for the nation of Israel. Please, please hear me with love. You are a fool if you reject Jesus Christ for your own temporary gratification. I say that in love. The Puritan Thomas More wrote, 
sin is always folly, and the sinner always a fool, for he secures the great evil of punishment in exchange for the small good of gratification, and therefore always makes a fool's bargain. Friends, you strike a fool's bargain when you reject the Savior because you will reap the consequences of that rejection. As Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Yet that is exactly what so many do. And that leads Zechariah to talk about the shepherd's disturbing rejection in verses 7 through 9. The shepherd's disturbing rejection. So, I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor and the other I called union. So I pastured the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month, for my soul was impatient with them, and their soul also was weary of me. Then I said, I will not pasture you. What is to die, let it die. And what is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. People often say that if Jesus would just come before us in person, in the flesh, and we could see him and hear him and know that he is real, then we would believe. Well, sadly, the truth is that it wouldn't make any difference. Jesus did come in the flesh. Jesus did walk on this earth for 33 years. He preached and he healed for three years, and thousands and thousands of people watched and heard him. Yet those very same people shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! and nailed him to a Roman cross. That is the depravity of the human heart, my friends. Let's unpack these verses. Look at verse 7. Zechariah takes up the ministry of shepherding the flock, and he takes two staffs that he calls favor and union. These two staffs represent the covenant relationship which God had established with the nation of Israel. They were united as one nation because they were recipients of God's favor, God's grace. Now, verse 8 is a very difficult verse to interpret. Quite frankly, I do not know who the three shepherds were, and neither does anyone else, judging from the literature on the subject. By one estimate, there are about 40 different interpretations of this verse, and I've read quite a few of them. One of the more popular interpretations suggests that they represent the three classes of leaders in Israel at the time of Christ, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Another popular interpretation suggests that they represent the three offices of prophet, priest, and king. 
Neither of these seem satisfactory to me, since the text implies that they are people, not categories or positions. But we really don't know who they would be. Whatever their specific identities, the point of the passage is clear. The true shepherd, Jesus, becomes frustrated with the obstinate flock and their leaders. The sheep and the leader become weary of him as well. In other words, the rejection is mutual. The people of Israel grow to loathe their true shepherd, so he abandons them to their false shepherds. Verse 9 is the shepherd's pronouncement of, an, of abandonment. The result of the flock's rejection of the shepherd is the shepherd's rejection of the flock. He abandons them. And in effect, if a shepherd abandons his flock, it's a death sentence, because no flock can exist safely without the protection of the shepherd. The true shepherd deliberately chooses to abandon the flock of Israel to the consequences of their own choice to reject him. God's judgment on a nation simply lets events follow their natural course to destruction. Josephus tells us how this verse literally came true during the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. In Jerusalem, there were three warring factions of Jews who lived within the city, and they literally butchered one another. And anyone they thought collaborated with the other factions, they considered it treasonous. So they were fighting each other within the city. Famine racked the city, and people resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. We know that from the historical record. People were literally murdered for a handful of grain. There was plenty of gold, but no food. So deserters to the Romans would swallow the gold and then retrieve it from their excrement outside the city of walls, uh, city walls after they deserted. Josephus tells us then that when others found out about this practice, they literally would slice people open to get the gold. And nearly 2,000 people died in this horrific manner. Zechariah predicted the fall of Jerusalem hundreds of years before it took place. You see, when Jesus Christ was rejected by his people, then he abandoned the nation and the terrible consequences took over. There are consequences to sin. The people had their Messiah right before them, but they spat in his face. They nailed him to a cross. Forty years later, they paid the price for their rejection, and in many ways, they are still paying that price as a nation today. Please don't learn the hard way that there are serious consequences to sin. Don't reject the Savior today, because if you reject the Savior, you will reap the consequences. I plead with you, I plead with you to believe now without delay and enjoy His grace forever.
Next, Zechariah predicts the shepherd's damaging renunciation. The shepherd's damaging renunciation in verses 10 through 14. Israel is a national allegory of a personal reality. We come now to one of the most remarkable prophecies about Israel's rejection. Listen to the words of Zechariah. I took my staff favor and cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock, who were watching me, realized that it was the word of the Lord. I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out thirty shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver, threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. The staff called favor or delightfulness represented the blessings of God for his covenant people. One of those blessings was that Jesus Christ, their true shepherd, protected them from the nations of this world so long as they obeyed the covenant. A covenant is a contract between two people. God had a contract with his people to protect them from the Gentile nations and they had a contract with God to obey him. Now he revokes, he breaks that contract with them, because they have broken it with him, and he allows the Gentile nations to destroy and oppress Israel because they rejected his shepherd. We have an interesting expression in verse 11, which also occurred back in verse 7. Most translations translate it as the afflicted of the flock, or the poor of the flock, or the oppressed of the flock. However, the expression in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint is just one word. The Greek translation translated it as the Canaanites. Originally, the word Canaanite meant a sheep merchant's or sheep dealer. So a better translation would be the sheep merchants who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. It was the sheep merchants who weighed out the 30 pieces of silver. They knowingly rejected the shepherd. I believe that the sheep merchants were the corrupt leaders of the nation of Israel in Zechariah's little prophetic play. They are the same people as the sellers in verse 5. These sheep merchants in Zechariah's drama hire the shepherd and pay him his wages in verse 12. That's the most natural way to understand who pays the shepherd, because the flock certainly wouldn't pay their own shepherd. 
These sheep merchants, then, were the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the first century who rejected Jesus because he was cutting into their profit margins. They knowingly rejected Jesus for commercial reasons. The shepherd requests his wages from the sheep merchants since he has terminated his responsibility for the flock in verse 12. The sheep merchants pay the shepherd 30 pieces of silver, which the shepherd in turn throws to the potter in the temple. Now, the only other place where this sum of 30 pieces of silver is mentioned in the Old Testament is Exodus 21:32, where it is the price of a slave. So it's an idiom, a figure of speech, of contempt in their culture. It's uh, like leaving a one-penny tip for the waitress to demonstrate our contempt of the, of the service that we received. The potter made cheap clay pots in the temple for people who could not afford anything better. The expression, throwing your money to the potter, came to be an expression like our throwing your money to the dogs. It's worthless. This little drama is fulfilled, of course, in the betrayal of Christ by Judas Iscariot in Matthew 27. Judas claimed the price of the shepherd, who was treated so contemptuously that a mere 30 pieces of silver bought the death of Messiah by the chief priests, by the sheep merchants. It's a metaphor, a figure of speech for the rejection of the shepherd of Israel by the leaders of the nation of Israel. Let me pause for a side note here. Some are bothered by the fact that Matthew attributes this expression to the prophet Jeremiah rather than Zechariah. There are a number of explanations, but perhaps the best one comes from Bishop Lightfoot, who points out that the Jewish tradition was to identify a scroll by the first book in the scroll. The first book in the scroll containing Zechariah was the book of Jeremiah. So Matthew was simply identifying the scroll from which he was quoting, not the book. All right, the shepherd then breaks the second staff in this drama. The staff is called Union. This staff represented the unity of the nation of Israel. Zechariah's prophecy literally came true following the death of Jesus Christ in the first century. The nation broke up into various bitter and brutal factions who fought one another even more than they fought the Romans. These factions eventually brought about the terrible war with the Romans. There were three warring factions in the city of Jerusalem led by three bitter enemies named Eliezer, Simon, and John. These partisan political parties actually destroyed the city from within long before the Romans ever breached the walls and entered the city. They had been fighting within the city for several years before the Romans came and defeated them. 
Once again, we see that the nation of Israel had to learn a bitter, bitter lesson. Reject the Savior and reap the consequences. So we have seen in this drama, this message of Zechariah, the shepherd's dreadful desolation, his doomed mission, his disturbing rejection, and his damaging renunciation. Finally, number five, let's look at the shepherd's devastating abdication. The shepherd's devastating abdication in verses 15 to 17. The Lord said to me, Take again for yourself the equipment of a foolish shepherd. For behold, I am going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, seek the scattered, heal the broken, or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hoofs. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered and his right eye will be blind. Zechariah now plays the part of a foolish shepherd. Since the true shepherd has abdicated his rule over the flock, there is now a power vacuum, and into this power vacuum God brings a false or foolish shepherd. This shepherd is bad news for the nation of Israel because he is cruel and ruthless in his treatment of the flock. Who is this ruthless shepherd, this foolish shepherd? Once again, there are a variety of interpretations, but the most common interpretation is that the foolish shepherd refers to the Roman emperors who lived during these years after Christ. Remember when Jesus was brought before Pilate, and the Jews stood to accuse him. They shouted to Pilate, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate asked a question. He said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest made this willful, knowingly willful declaration, which became prophetic. We have no king but Caesar, John 19.15. We have no king but Caesar. They chose Caesar over Jesus. Caesar is exactly who God gave them as a ruler when the true shepherd abandoned them. The Caesar who lived shortly after the death of Christ was called Caligula. He reigned from AD 37 to 41. And he was nicknamed Bootsy because he was literally insane. Caligula was consumed with his own deification and tried to set up his image in the temple of Jerusalem. The Jews had shouted, We have no king but Caesar. And God says, Then Caesar you shall have as your king. Reject the Savior, God says, and reap the consequences. As one writer put it, Wicked rulers are a curse of God on a wicked nation. The wonder of wonders is that people will reject the true shepherd 
but accept the foolish shepherds. It shows us how sinful the human heart really is. We get what we choose in the end. Think about that. We get what we choose in the end. A wicked nation chooses wicked rulers as God curses a nation with wicked consequences. Ultimately, however, I believe this prophecy finds its true fulfillment in the Antichrist, who will rule Israel in the end times. Daniel prophesied about this Antichrist ruler in Daniel seven twenty four to twenty six and Daniel eleven thirty six to thirty nine. John predicts such a ruler in Revelation thirteen verses one through eight. The Apostle Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Yet even this final worthless shepherd of Israel will one day be judged by God according to Zechariah 11 verse 17. In fact, the very areas where he takes the most pride will be his downfall his mighty right arm and his right eye will be destroyed. The Antichrist will meet his downfall when Jesus Christ returns, according to Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21. Isn't that beautiful? That is our hope. Even in this prophecy of horrible doom, there is a wonderful ray of hope for the nation of Israel. My friends, the message of Zechariah is simple. You cannot reject the Savior without reaping the consequences. The nation of Israel had to learn that lesson the hard way. God set Israel aside, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, so that salvation could come to the Gentiles. But God warns us Gentiles not to become conceited because as Paul writes in Romans 11.21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. The nation of Israel has spent 2,000 years learning about the consequences of rejecting their Messiah. When will we learn? How long will it take for Gentiles to learn that rejecting the Savior brings terrible consequences? My friends, Israel is a national allegory of a personal reality. The same process plays out on a personal level between you and God, between me and God. If you are listening and you are going your own way, and living your own life without regard to Jesus Christ, please be warned today. Rejecting the Savior means reaping the consequences one day. Please, please do not strike the fool's bargain that life now is worth losing your soul forever. Put your faith in Jesus and enjoy eternal life.